A long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is great disturbance in the force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 204 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your podcast of legends, as well as canon, and your ticket to that galaxy far, far away. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division, at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes, as well as Stitcher, and the Star Wars app, uh, found on Android, and right on our own Twitter and Facebook pages at Films. Hey, but enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one your host, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, the bipolar Star Wars fan, Mark Herleman. And with me like that sense of completion you get when you learn Grand Admiral Thrawn has been added to canon, the EU guru himself, the count of our two continuities, Mr. Nathan P. Butler! So I'm like, excitement, and then sitting back and going, huh, he wasn't used much, basically. Something like that. You will be the architect of our undoing. (laughs) Yep, pretty much. Yeah, it's going to be an interesting season of Rebels. I I'm I enjoyed the season premiere, and it'll be odd not discussing it, but I look forward to the questions that uh, the quartet throws my way from the new podcast, which is probably a good chance to plug it. Yeah, that's right. That's right. The Padawan Perspective Podcast. 3P. I don't know how that worked out. You know, we're just going to call it the Padawan Perspective mostly. But yeah, the, the Padawan Perspective Podcast, a multi-generational Star Wars podcast commentary. Uh, we're talking about Rebels. We're talking about Freemakers. We're talking about the newest, uh, latest, greatest events and toys, things like that. Uh, from a multi-generational perspective, it's me, my daughter. It's Barrett from Rebels Roundtable and his son, Pharaoh. Uh, and eventually it will be the kids show and we'll just also be like Nathan coming on as guests and we will also have different guests that have been on Rebels Roundtable as well as Republic Forces Radio Network uh, you can find him there he does a lot of different collecting things for them but he's also he's got the ins and the outs down there at uh, San Diego Comic Con things like that so Pharaoh and him they'll be like on the scene quite a bit uh, reporting from that so we're going to have that multi-generational type of show it'll be really fun we'll be mainly focusing on Rebels now that it's kicked off uh, we're going to be recording our uh, first episode tonight our zero episodes already up you can find it on facebook and on itunes very cool and of course i'm still over with michael for cloud city casino so we're both kind of doing double duty at this point though yours is more of a family duty mine is more of a just sit around and bs about games yeah which is still fun Now here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we ask the tough questions. Questions that have bothered you for a long time, or simple ones that have perplexed you off and on. You ponder about Star Wars and so do we. This episode, we plunge into Claudia Gray's Lost Stars, the true journey to The Force Awakens. Now before we get too deep into spoiler territory, we'll give you our quick spoiler-free rundown. Just be sure to jump off at Tarkin's Arrogance. 
The reign of the Galactic Empire has reached the outer rim planet of Jellucan, where aristocratic Thane Kyrell and rural villager Sienna Reed bond over their love of flying. Enrolling at the Imperial Academy is nothing less than a dream come true for both of them, but Thane sours on the dream when he sees firsthand the horrific tactics the Empire uses to maintain its ironclad rule. Bitter and disillusioned, he joins the fledging rebellion, putting Sienna in an unbearable position between her loyalty to the Empire and her love for the man she's known since childhood. Now, on opposite sides of the war, will these friends turned foes ever find a way to be together? Or will duty tear them and the galaxy apart? Yes, duty is sometimes duty, isn't it? Yeah, that was that was that was pretty bad, wasn't it? So this is an interesting one. I have not been shy in saying in the past that Lost Stars is, in my opinion, so far the single best book we've gotten for the new canon, for story group canon. Uh, and I still maintain that same position. This is a young adult book that runs about 550 pages, which is pretty extreme for a young adult book, pretty extreme for a Star Wars book in many cases. But it's it's chock full of cool stuff because this is really sort of... It, they, they promoted it as Romeo and Juliet in space, like star-crossed lovers in space. Uh, and I've mentioned before, I think it was on one of our year in review episodes, that I don't think that's a good parallel because to me, Romeo and Juliet has always been less a love story, more a cautionary tale. What happens if you see someone and get hooked on their looks, know nothing about them, decide to hook up very quickly, get married very quickly, still not knowing each other, even though your families hate each other, and oh, big freaking shock, crap goes down, and now you're both dead because you're stupid. So to me, calling it Romeo and Juliet sort of does it a disservice, but in the the sense that this is sort of the two lovers from opposite sides of the tracks, mm -hmm. that's kind of what we've got here. We have the, uh, the summary said it well, right? We have our aristocratic family side of things, the second waivers with Thane Kyrell. We have Sienna Ree, who is more sort of the rural earliest group of settlers, the valley kindred for whom honor is huge and they believe in the force. Very different worlds drawn together by something that they care about that will eventually carry them forward through the story. But unlike most of our other character study type stories, um, whether we're talking Tarkin or we're talking about uh, A New Dawn, most of those, barring flashbacks in Tarkin, tend to stick to one era. And it's basically, here's their story, we're learning about them that way, and there are references to their past. Whereas this really does tell their story basically from ages 8 to 24. So it starts out 11 years before A New Hope with them as 8-year-olds when the Empire first comes to Jalukan, or Jalukan, or how are you supposed to say it, and that carries all the way through until the Battle of Jakku a year after Return of the Jedi. I think, to me, that's probably the key, because this was a book that I was able to really get into because I liked the characters and I liked to see them grow, and by the time we get to some of the more momentous stuff happening late in the book, you have an emotional attachment to them that a lot of Star Wars characters don't get in canon so far because we don't know enough about them. We need to have more to them. Uh, sometimes it's like we're being asked to care before we know why we should care. And in this case, she sort of step-by-step step gives us their life of growing together, getting used to each other, the, the shared trials they go through, the individual trials they go to, uh, up to the point where they wind up on opposite sides of the Galactic Civil War, only to wind up facing each other later. And in the process... And this is a thing that's often derided about this book. In the process, they wind up crossing paths and having roles that tie into events in A New Hope, The Empire Strikes Back, and Return of the Jedi. Now, some would say, why do these new characters just have to have something to do with the movies? And that's how they usually bash the book. 
I think it was handled incredibly well and very much in keeping with what realistically would have made sense for these characters to have been experiencing if they really are some of these top level Imperial cadets once they get into actual service. So for me, seeing them having that those roles in the film have the same kind of beefing up of the film's effect that, say, reading Tales from the Most Icely Cantina did or Tales from Jabba's Palace. It lets me know more about characters who are sort of just barely off camera or maybe on camera we didn't realize it was them. That just adds to the enjoyment of the film as opposed to being something that feels completely shoehorned and out of place. So we've got a book with a lot of time covered. A lot of events covered, connections to the films, and a cool story between these two characters. It's not going to be for everyone because some people don't want love stories in their Star Wars, particularly amongst those who are teenagers. But I find that this book um, beat all of my expectations, and it, as I said, still remains my number one. So it is highly recommended. See, I remember when they were talking about this being a young adult book. And when I was looking, I didn't understand. You know, it was such a big book that this book looks, feels like any other book you would have got from, say, Del Rey. You know, this is a new publisher for us. And that was something that was totally new to me. I wasn't understanding the whole YA angle. Everybody was making a big deal about this being a, a YA book. And I, I I just completely didn't understand. So now I look at it more from like a, a Nate point of view, you know, from a schooling angle. It's like, oh, OK, this is going to be aimed more at my daughter right away versus, you know, something when she's more later in high school. OK, it's a, still a big book, though. That's what that's what completely blew away that perception for me. Uh, I like the fact that there was a force theme you know nate you talked about how they were always in all these main things it also worked to drawing them together i mean you know one of the characters kind of believed more in that stuff whereas thane wasn't so into it but by the time the books end he'd kind of came around uh there was some really cool stuff there subtle little things to the past like the valley kindred you found out that they were exiles from another war from long ago in some other part of the galaxy where they were exiled to that planet as punishment uh and i thought that was kind of cool so that kind of impacted and shaped their belief structure and why loyalty mattered above all else. You know, your word meant everything. Uh, and that played very big into Sienna Ree's character. I mean, you know, I mean, there were some great moments later in the book where she is a prisoner of her own loyalty and, and Thane's talking about it to other people about how, you know, there are people that are serving the empire that are good. They're just, they're, they're, they're doing the wrong things. And, you know, we were talking last episode in the legacy storms issue where, you had that similar thing where you had people siding to the wrong emperor and that was the only thing their loyalty is what got them killed in the war and we see that from that point of view from the relationship as it falls apart uh, i'm with you in the aspect of the multi-year expanse seeing their lives drawn out i thought that was a really cool touch uh i, I found by the time I, I got to the end of the book especially i was really just tore up for some of the way the book ended uh you know nate you've always said this has been your number one this has been my number one off and on it's definitely in my top tier ring I like this one. I still like Dark Disciple. I think that Dark Disciple for me, I enjoyed that the most. Uh, but this one is right up there with it. Um, and I also still enjoyed uh, the Battlefront book because it also drew towards some of the events on Haas. But that's what I really got a kick out of with this was the way that those work together. I mean, we have Wedge is kind of responsible for getting Thane to join the Rebels. And the way Thane joins the Rebels and the way it plays out with the character interactions between him and Sienna, uh, the way that she finds ways to not break her code 
and yet be true to Thane and be true to the Empire. Because Thane, when Thane decides to go on, he puts her in a very difficult position. And the way that's handled, I really enjoyed what it does for other characters, especially Nash Windrinder. Uh, when when Nash finds out, you know, when all the, the secrets and everything come to light, I really think it did a great job of pushing him into that nemesis role. Like, I mean, it was, and I thought it was just so brilliantly done because Nash was an Alderaanian. And so to have him working for the Empire through the events of A New Hope, you know, and Alderaan getting taken out and his point of view as to why serving the Empire is still something fundamental and critical. I, I just, I thought that was a really cool takeaway. Uh, and, and they had other characters that were these side characters and background characters that interwove throughout these main two characters story in a way that really fleshed it out. And I mean, I, I, so I can understand why a young adult book could grow to this size because Claudia Gray once again proves she is a damn good writer and is deserved of Star Wars. I, I think that they need to be throwing her at more titles. I think so far, you know, she is proving that she could do, I want to see her add some more books to her Star Wars repertoire and, and start lacing these characters in more. We have, uh, Yendor showing up in this. And when I read about Yendor and Bloodline, I didn't even put two and two together that this was the same Yendor. And Yendor has a big role in this for a side character. I absolutely loved it. I, I listened to the audiobook. I've read it. Uh, but I, I am kind of really enjoying the fact that the audiobooks like it puts me in a way where now I'm when I think about the characters' names, I at least know I'm saying it right. Whereas you know, usually I'm the one that calls them like Coran Horn and and Talon Cardi and things like that. And everybody's like, dude, it's it's Talon Card. Come on. And so like for the first time ever, I, I feel like okay, I know how to pronounce these because when I look at them, I'm kind of like, how would you say that? Is that a hard E and a hard A sound? <laughs> I would also note here, I guess, just since we are in non-spoiler territory and this sometimes will help people to decide whether or not to pick up the book or in this case, because it's young adult, pick it up for their kids. Uh, I would note here that this book features some of the few overt sexual situations for Star Wars characters that we've seen. Um, there are two instances in which we uh, don't necessarily see, um, but we are sort of leading into a couple of the characters having sex. Yes. And that is going to be something that depending on the age of the child you have reading this you may or may not want them to run into yeah my daughter is 14 and i i've been pushing this book on her and she hasn't really had a chance i mean she competes uh, competitive dance and now the podcast so I'm hoping that she'll open up to read the books because really her fandom isn't about reading it's more about watching uh, but this was one that I you know the, the sex scenes didn't bother me so bad they, they weren't explicit sex scenes uh, you know it was kind of like the chipmunks doing the brown chicken brown cow kind of joke uh, you know I mean they, they reference it is what it is they made love this kind of stuff uh, and, and there were some funny moments earlier in the book about Nash's older brother making or not Nash's Thane's older brother making fun of you know him having a crush on Sienna for, you know, obviously teenage reasons and things like that. But yeah, that was one of those things that, that made me kind of take pause at first. But then I was like, you know, it it really, it, it wasn't even a big thing in the book. It really just solidified the romance between the two. And I think for most young adults reading books like this, the way they handled it, I think if most of us parents have done our job right, you should already have an idea of what's going on in a relationship when it's a mature relationship and it's moving forward towards something in an adult fashion. Uh, and so I, I think that, again, 
Claudia Gray handled that pretty good. I think you touched on it briefly, but this was also part of that push for the Force Friday. And I remember when this came out, like there were so many books. It was hard to tell which ones were the ones that like you need to grab. And like this one was one that I didn't get right away because I just I, I didn't feel like I could afford it at the time. There were a lot of other things coming out. And honestly, the journey to the Force Awakens was, you know, the the, the descriptions of all the books that came with that title. Very few really felt like they were going to do something with it. And then the few that I banked on did such a terrible job that I really was hesitant to come back around to this. And it wasn't until you, Nate, were saying that this was one of the best books that I was like, okay, I'm going to have to go and get it. Uh, and in fact, I think this is the one that you ended up sending to me is how I got this copy. I, I only had it on the audiobook before that. We've analyzed their attack, sir, and there are spoilers. Should I have your ship standing by? Evacuate? In our moment of triumph? I think you overestimate their chances. Now consider that your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentience of All Ages, because here we go. On another adventure, Beyond the Films. Yes, yeah, so summary-wise, this one is going to be particularly difficult because there is so much going on. But essentially, we start out by being on Jalukan as the Empire is arriving in 11 BBY. We meet Sienna Ree and Thane Kyrell at age 8. Thane is a member of the Second Waivers, the sort of more aristocratic, uh, more urban individuals. And then Sienna Ree, as we mentioned, she's more sort of the rural valley kindred, the people who still believe in the Force, the people who are still uh, sort of backwater in a sense, even though they were the original settlers of the planet. They both become enthralled with this idea of becoming Imperial pilots. So we see them as they train for that, as we jump ahead to them being 13, to being 14, to being 15, and how they're drawing closer together as friends because of this, and starting to notice each other from a, a, a not really a sexual way, but an attraction sort of way, as their hormones, of course, are starting to, uh, to bubble up. We eventually get to them at age 16 and find that they have both made it into an Imperial Academy, specifically the Royal Imperial Academy on Coruscant, and we follow them through their training at the Academy as the, what's called the Office of Student Outcomes decides to basically sabotage a project that Thane is working on specifically to try to drive him and Sienna apart because they don't want people to have ties back to their homes. They want their ties only to be with the Empire, which causes them to have a falling out for most of the rest of the time that they're there. When they do finally come back together, it's right before A New Hope, and they're able to essentially, uh, in a sense, let bygones be bygones and become friends again or be interested in each other again. And as it turns out, Sienna gets assigned to the Devastator and Thane gets assigned to the Death Star. When A New Hope happens, when the Battle of Yavin and everything happens, uh, they both have very different views of what happened to Alderaan. We'll talk about that later, I'm sure. But as we get throughout the film, we find that Thane is not on the Death Star when it explodes because he is actually part of a team that is sent out to Dantooine to check on that supposed rebel base that Leia mentions in A New Hope, the one that had already been abandoned for some time, while Sienna is uh, aboard the Devastator and then eventually is one of two pilots sent out to actually recover Darth Vader in his damaged TIE Advanced after the battle is over, after the film is over. This continues us into an era where Thane is growing more and more disenchanted with the Empire, but they are supposed to spend five years in Imperial service after graduating. After that, they can choose what their fate is, but for now, they're kind of stuck, and Sienna, for her part, has made an oath, and to her people, honor is everything, so she intends to stay with the Empire regardless of whether or not she's agreeing with it, and over time, she will start to see more and more negative 
negative things about the Empire. Finally, Thane winds up, after seeing more brutality, essentially jumping ship, winds up becoming uh, a member of the crew of a ship called the Mighty Oak Apocalypse, and then winds up meeting Wedge Antilles and joining the Rebellion officially. Whereas Sienna winds up being posted aboard the Executor, which brings us into The Empire Strikes Back, when Thane is among the rebels who are flying speeders, actually alongside his buddy Dak Raltier, uh, though not in the same speeder, of course, because Dak's with Luke, uh, in the Battle of Hoth, uh, Sienna being part of that as well. There comes a point where Sienna, her family, comes under attack, essentially, by false accusations made against her mother. And as part of doing the honorable thing back home, she goes to try to stand up for her mother, only nobody else shows up. They're supposed to. You're supposed to back up the other families that you're tied into, but... People don't, except Thane does. And between that and other encounters, it eventually pulls them together, despite the fact they're on very different sides of this and don't really know what to do about it. Uh, And they wind up kind of having a relationship, essentially being in love, but barely being able to ever see each other. And finally, she leaves and basically claims that uh, she did find him, but no, he he committed suicide, he's dead, you know, they don't need to look at look for him, etc, etc. Eventually, we get to the era of Return of the Jedi. Thane is now flying with Corona Squadron, and flies with them during the Battle of Endor, whereas Sienna is present when the Emperor arrives at the Death Star. She is on uh, an Imperial vessel, or I guess she's in a Starfighter, when the Executor gets taken out, when the Death Star gets taken out, and Thane believes that she is dead. Uh, she winds up being gravely injured, she heals of her wounds, gets a new liver and whatnot over time. Uh, A new liver transplant, of course, that's something that's grown for her, until finally we get to the Battle of Jakku, as was arranged in Life Debt by Gallius Rax, who isn't mentioned here, but Grand Moff Rand is, and he does appear briefly in Life Debt to kind of tie these two together. Uh, The Battle of Jakku takes place, and the Rebels attempt, or the New Republic at that point, attempt to try to steal as many Star Destroyers as they can, because they need more than they can build quickly. And it just so happens that Thane and his team basically go aboard the Inflictor, which is the Star Destroyer, not only that Ray drives by in The Force Awakens, but is also now commanded by Captain Sienna Ree. When it looks like the ship is going to be taken, she decides to lock herself on the bridge, evacuate her entire crew, just like she had contemplated back during the Academy days in a particular scenario, and is going to crash it into the surface. Thane leaves his team, has them finish their duties, goes to the bridge, uses a phrase he knows she would use as a passcode, enters the bridge, and tries to convince her to go with him. Essentially what we get is a bare-knuckle brawl between the two, beating the crap out of each other, essentially both trying to save each other's lives and at the, the peak of emotion here, because in Sienna's case, duty has bound her to the Empire, Dying with the ship would just be an an end to basically her time being with the Empire and yet feeling they don't deserve her loyalty, but honor bound to give it. So she wants to basically get Thane out of there to safety. She wants to die. In his case, he intends to take her with him. So neither of them die because he loves her and so on until finally he stuns her, puts them both in an escape pod and launches for the surface. They are recovered. Thane is brought back into New Republic fold. Sienna is found also in the same escape pod by the New Republic searchers and winds up being a prisoner. They don't necessarily know how long she'll be a prisoner, and she may be able to be let out at some point. Uh, Thane will certainly speak well for her, but she's not willing to betray her honor and give up Imperial information, which may be an easy way to buy her way out. So we're left with this question that he is, you know, he's going to visit her. 
he wants to try to find a way to get her out of there, but she is duty-bound, and he wants to try to do right by her and by the New Republic at the same time. Love essentially demands no less. We end jumping one month after the Battle of Jakku to find that there is now a treaty that has bound the Empire to a specific territory. Fighting is over between the New Republic and Empire, but Nash Windrider, one of their other friends who was a native of Alderaan and had a thing for Sienna, uh, who now believes she is dead and wants to avenge her, he and others are amongst Imperial forces that are escaping into a nebula to hide for a while and rebuild their forces, what will eventually become part of the heart of the First Order. See? Told you there was a lot, and in a way, that only scratches the surface. I know. That's the thing. I mean, there are so many things. So many things you, you've you've skimmed by that I want to talk about. So much so that I'm terrified that as I get us going, we're going to jump things I want to still talk about, too. One of the things that, that I think was really cool about the heart of the story, too, is that when they went to Coruscant, and they were pilots, and they were going through the ranks, the two of them were neck and neck for top spot. And the Empire creates this this moment where there was some cheating. And it looks like it was Sienna that did the cheating that caused Thane to lose. And then, during more research, you find out that it was actually set up to make it look like Sienna was set up. And it turned out it was Thane. But in reality, it was neither one. It was the Empire themselves. And Thane figured that out. Uh, and, he, and he was pretty ticked off about it. But Sienna, she just didn't believe it. And the rift that that caused for quite a while, like I, I, that's that progression. That's that aspect of this had to be a story that spanned a lifespan because they, you know, they started out as kids. They, you know, they were infatuated with each other more than just friends, you know. And then at that point when they should have started to hook up, you know, this happened and it caused a rift that caused them to drift even farther apart. But their attraction to each other never went away. So that was kind of a really cool angle. Um, man, there's so many things I want to jump all over the place here. Uh, oh man, I'm gonna let you just touch on a couple. Of things real quick and then we'll get back into some more because I'm, a, I'm afraid I'm going to jump towards the end and I don't want to do that. <laughs> so, wow. Um, it's kind of hard to know where to start here. I guess we could start with the, the, the point of contention for a lot of people, which is the way that this story interweaves with the films. Um, we're basically focused on Thane and Sienna. We also have Nash Windrider. We also have Jude Edavon, who's a member of their their group. We have uh, Kendi Idell, I believe is how you pronounce her name. So there are other members of their graduating class that we meet while they're in the Imperial Academy who we see who sort of help provide backdrop. Even Yendor is one of the pilots uh, who, of course, is the guy from Ryloth that winds up sort of setting things in motion in Claudia Gray's other Star Wars book, Bloodline, as far as investigating Rin Riven D. I've mentioned before, to me, the way that they integrated into the films worked well. It wasn't that they were crossing paths constantly with the rebels and not catching them. We're not even really constantly crossing paths with, say, Vader or the Emperor, though she happens to be in a room when he arrives. Uh, there is an encounter with Vader. There is an encounter with Tarkin. But they're all done in sort of an organic way that feels like it logically could have happened, as a Opposed to it being sort of the Mary Sue situation where it's just, ooh, these are my characters. I want my characters that represent me to be hobnobbing with all of these movie characters. Isn't that going to be fun? It seemed to me that it made sense and it was a way to sort of ground this very personal story of these two, not just in the universe, but into the original trilogy and sort of give those galactic stakes as part of the story when in the foreground is all these really personal stakes for them. Do you think they handled it well, or is this 
shoehorned? I mean, what, what's your take on it? I liked it, but I seem to be, at least amongst the crowds, being very vocal about the book. I uh, seem to be somewhat in the minority on that one. So I'm in the same minority. I guess I'm used to that being a Legends fan. I mean, that kind of tie-in is the stuff that you and I really get a kick out of. Um, you, you know, I mentioned Battlefront because it's the same thing. I mean, they did a really good job with this, not just doing one, but tying it into all three. I thought that was a, a brilliant move. You know, there, there's just, oh man, there's just so much about this book that I really got to kick out of the the way that sienna was able to recognize thane by the way he flies uh and that tied back into when they were training and they got their uh speeders tied together and they together flew the rest of the course you know and they they went and threaded a needle together and that became kind of like thane's signature move uh and the fact that the force being there as a background was something that Sienna ble uh, believed in. You know, uh, the kindred, they were very much into rituals, things like that. She had a bracelet uh, that she would wore, uh, that she wore. It reminded her of her twin sister. And her twin sister uh, had died during childbirth. And so she would have it and she would say, Look into my, look through my eyes. And it was this really cool thing because it became something that was not just special to her it was special to her dad and it also you know it became something that thane eventually does when he thinks she dies he creates a mourning band and he uses it because he follows the kindred's ruling and you know i mean he wasn't blood related so he does what he can uh it, it, you watch that progression for him because as a second waiver you know they always look down on the people to the point that he was very embarrassed uh of his family uh you know his family came from so much money and stuff and like he would take a zip line down to his room little things i mean claudia Gray does little things like that zip line. It was only mentioned once at the beginning of the book, but it was something I absolutely loved. And he gets down to the bottom and and reads down there waiting for him. And she's like, "Well, I could do it too." He's like, "Yeah, if you could go up there," because her his parents don't like her; they hate her. Uh, and it's so much so that he's embarrassed by the way that they treat her. The one time he brought her over, uh, and, and those interactions and stuff really work well. But having it backdrop with the New Hope, having him come on the Death Star and stuff, I thought that was a brilliant play. It it, it felt like very much like how Legends did the Death Star book, where we got inside and and got to see the point of view. Jude's character was a really cool character in that regard because she ends up dying on the Death Star and yet she wasn't a bad character. You know, she was one of those characters that, you know, you could have seen her leaving and, and joining the Rebels at some point because she was so smart. She was kind of figuring things out. She figured out the flaw on the Death Star. Uh, you know, there was really cool things like that too that I got a kick out of. I, I think the Hoth angle worked. I think bringing Yendor in like they did and having him continue on, having them be part of, uh, of Corona Squadron, I thought that was a really cool thing. I like the fact that they had Thane off doing his own thing with the Mighty Oak Apocalypse when he's trying to be a smuggler on his own before he meets Wedge and joins the Rebellion. Like, he was hesitant to do it. He didn't want to do it. And that playing in to when Nash Windrider finds out that he's alive, because when Sienna tracks him down, she decides to do it out of honor and, and knows where he would go. So she goes and meets him at their homeworld, and then that's when they end up falling in love, doing the little brown chicken, brown cow action. And afterwards, she she knows she's got to do her duty and he's got to take off. So she, she decides basically she's going to tell everyone that he died and Nash believes that for the longest time. And so Nash is always like, you know, Oh, I'm so sorry about this, that, and the other thing. And then when he finds out that things alive and that 
Thane had lied to Sienna, like it changed because like he's kind of like had a crush on Sienna the whole time. But like once he knows Thane's alive and how dare Thane do this to you, like now he's really putting it on like we should be together. Like I could take care of you. And the way that that plays up and the way that she's always like when he touches her, she cringes and things like that. Like I I just I I love the way that that all worked together. You know, it, it seemed like every single one of the battles work towards the end results. Uh, it, it does make me wonder, though, when they get closer to Return of the Jedi, this is a question I wanted to ask you. It felt like they used when, oh, who was it that sent her? Uh, one of the, I think it was Admiral Piet sent her and, and told her, you know, you need to save one of the rebels. Make sure one of the rebels survives so they can tell what's going on. And she recognizes Thane by his flying or, no, at this point, I think it was the second one where she actually says it over the comms and he says something back. Uh, but she ends up saving him and, and he goes back. But they kind of hinted that that was how the rebels found the second Death Star's location and not the Bothans. Mm, that well, threw me off. No, what, and I, it took me a second on that also. Um, this is another kind of those seeding things. Like you mentioned how Jude is the one who figures out that, you know, that is a danger, you know, that where that leads, leads dude to go up there and ask Tarkin about evacuating, but he won't do it. Uh, just another of those seeding things here. In this case, I don't think it has anything to do necessarily with the location of the Death Star itself. But remember uh, that the Bothered spies bring the information about the Death Star. And then Mamatba says that they've managed to learn, most important of all, that the Emperor will be overseen seeing it. So I'm assuming that because they show up and they see in the Hudala system this massive fleet and realize it can only be for the transport of the Emperor who barely ever leaves Coruscant, I think that was what they learned. That's their confirmation. The Emperor is going there. We've got to take this shot now. So it's like the Bothans had their aspect about the station and then Corona Squadron, Thane's group, had their role in the fact that Palpatine would be there. Uh, You know, and then when I was rereading it before this episode, I'd already read Bloodlines, uh, Life debt, so I knew more about what was going on with Ray Sloan. I was kind of bummed that they didn't mention Ray Sloan, because they do put it out there, it has a very Legends feel in the aspect of, you know, the battle just happened, and the Empire is shattered, and you've got all these people all saying they're Emperor. You know, they mentioned that multiple people had said they were Emperor at this point. Uh, and I was kind of hoping for more of the power play what was going on later, but I like the fact that they played it close to the chest in that regard. Uh, you know, they mentioned, you know, when this was a journey of the Force Awakens, there would be clues, you know, to the Force Awakens. And really, I think the biggest clue that we came away with was that not all the fleet was at Jakku. I mean, like that, we see that they are committing almost everything to it. This book flat out says that there wasn't the entirety of the fleet there, that there was still other elements of the fleet in hiding still. So, you know, what we were talking about a couple episodes about, you know, does this battle wipe them out? It's This is a feint. This is the great feint. They, they, they put up enough ships to make everyone in the galaxy think this was their big push and they failed that was rax's success that was how he beat them because now they've got that treaty i mean when the when the book ends it talks about nash is he's overseeing some tie fighters being uh upgraded they're being upgraded with weapons that can blast through tie fighters or uh, x-wing shields you know i mean and and they're not going to be going up against anybody they're just going to be upgrading these things from here on out i mean when you think about it and this was something that after i reread this that i thought about when we watched the force awakens for the first time i realized the force awakens 
is probably the closest we're going to get to Empire Strikes Back in this next trilogy because it does end on that bad note. We watched the First Order wipe out the New Republic. Their fleet's taken out, their their Senate's taken out, their political base is taken out, their president's out. They've politically taken out the head, they've taken out the military force, and even though the First Order lost a good chunk of its stuff, there is still the fleet out there. It was just one space station that was taken out. I mean, we are about to see where this could go from here, and it wasn't until I was rereading this that I realized, holy crap, Rax has set up some really, I mean, this is Thrawn-level brilliance, man. I mean, that everybody, you've got Mon Mothma de-arming the military after this. Like, holy crap. Like, Well, uh, she wants to. Well, yeah, she wants she to. She manage it. Yeah, I read, this is, seeing how this leads to the First Order was very interesting, especially since this was the first hint we really got of that. I mean, Aftermath came out on the same day, but Aftermath didn't really give us much. Oh, ooh, the Fleet Admiral, whose whose identity is such a mystery. And then, you know, they just flat out say his name and make it no mystery whatsoever in the second book. But this was really our first chance to really see much about the Battle of Jakku outside of references in some of the guidebooks released around the same time. I think it's interesting that, I mean, even though the conflict in essence has wrapped up. I mean, there's even a point where Sienna is sort of glad that, you know, the New Republic defeated the Empire at Endor, even though she's still serving it, because at least it means that if the New Republic is becoming this new legitimate government in the galaxy or another legitimate government, it means that Thane finally has a place to call home. That Thane finally isn't just a fugitive rebel, that he is part of that system and can simply live his life. Uh, always kind of seeing it through the eyes of the perception of what will it do to the other character. I thought it was great. Though I will say there's another connection, though, to The Force Awakens beyond just the different aspects that can tie into Rax's plan, because it's the squadron that uh, Thane is flying with that winds up discovering Dakar as a potential new rebel base. And they don't wind up using it as a rebel base for all we know, but of course that's the planet being used as the resistance base years and years later by the era of The Force Awakens. Um, so they're, they're tying those in. We've got the tie-in of, uh, again, Dak Router being somebody who we barely see in The Empire Strikes Back, but who strikes up a friendship with Thane and gives us someone to bounce off of. He's a film character. But he's not a major film character. In a way, he kind of acts like the wedge for this story in the case of, say, uh, uh, Aftermath, where here's an established character, but a minor one as far as the films are concerned, but their role is to bring us into these others. There's even a funny scene... <laughs> There comes a point where Thane is talking about what's been going on, and he finally, he just breaks down, and he's been drinking. He breaks down all emotional and just kind of babbles about his troubles and the frustrations and all this stuff that's going on with Sienna and her being with the Empire and all this stuff to this woman that he bumps into after a night of drinking. And it turns out that the woman, oops, is Mon Mothma, who <laughs> afterwards it, it doesn't really say anything during the briefing, but then it's like, you know, you got to put something else above the personal and, and it helps him sort of recommit to the cause rather than specifically to Sienna, which is it's a good moment, an important moment for the character, just like him realizing later that maybe the force really does exist because of how much he and Sienna kept being drawn back together. But they make good use here of these, for lack of a better term, like cameo appearances almost um, that allow for these connections. There's even a point at which Sienna and Thane are at a like a ball uh, for the uh, Academy and Leia is there as a young senator or, or the daughter of a senator. I forget what the oh, time frame was. was. At that time, she was the senator, yeah. 
So you've got that, then the playing off back and forth that gives them a chance. It's That's the, the instance in which they finally start to sort of come back together after the Office of Student Outcomes ties, tears, them, tears them, dang, tears them apart. Which I guess brings up a point that I wanted to bring up, which is that whole Office of Student Outcomes thing. In the grand scheme of this book, it's not a, I mean, it's a big deal, but it's not like the driving force of the book. The driving force is, you know, once they're actually out there in their military careers and what's happening with them that'll eventually drive them apart because they're seeing the empire for what it can do and all that kind of stuff. But I found it interesting that, I mean, the empire is so manipulative that while they're drilling skills into these people, while they're giving these academy trainees all kinds of new skills, new knowledge, and making them very, very loyal, it's still not enough. Thane and Sienna were very much loyal to the Empire, very dedicated to their careers, but that wasn't enough. They had to find a way to drive them apart. And there's a great irony in the fact that it wasn't actually the cheating itself that wound up driving them apart. It was the fact that they figured out that the Office of Student Outcomes had faked information and set up the what looked like cheating specifically to drive them apart. And in doing so, Thane wants to buck authority and turn them in. Sienna isn't willing to because of the trouble it would cause uh, for them within the Empire and isn't willing to risk their careers. So it's still that same thing where it's about Thane kind of rebelling against authority, partly because he had an abusive father, and Sienna being so loyal to the Empire because of her oath that still is what drives them apart. But it's the Office of Student Outcomes and their intervention that winds up sort of being the catalyst for it. I found that really interesting, both on the, wow, the Empire really is manipulative and crappy to its cadets, but also the fact that even though they essentially defeated the Office of Student Outcomes by realizing what it was, they still tear each other apart. And it takes one of their friends later to basically say, dude, you realize you just did exactly for the last couple of years what they wanted to do to you in the first place. Yeah, I loved when he when he said it, too. He was all laughing like, hey, you guys are a couple idiot backworlders, man. You fell right into it. <laughs> You're like, oh, uh, you know, you and I, we always look at books beyond just the story you know we're looking for you know a is that an error is this does this not line up does that work things like that and there was one of those moments where i thought oh oh hey that's not right but then when i stopped and i thought about it more i was like oh that's brilliant and it's right when they're being told thane and his group of rebels being told to go after the star destroyer and thane comments that it can't be done no one had done it yet and i was thinking well wait a minute life debt that should have they did it in life debt and then i stopped and i thought about the time placing of that scene and life debt it's happening in the same literally probably the same week ah so but it's still taking it shouldn't have been news at that point yeah but now we got last flight of the harbinger in the star wars ongoing series by marvel mm. so now there is no reason for them not to say it unless they just didn't know about that mission that was perhaps so secretive but it's one of those things to run into when you're dealing with a shared continuity of some kind or shared universe be careful with those it's the biggest ever be careful with those never happened it's the first time you, you gotta be real careful with any things that set absolutes because then something can much more easily contradict it, and that seems to have been the case here. Well, she also went on to say that they had upgraded, the, the Star Destroyers had upgraded their security since early in the war. So depending on where that Marvel story is set, it could still fit. True. I mean, it's set fairly soon after A New Hope, as far as we know, but again, that's Marvel's whole, well, it's sometime between A New Hope and Empire. We'll uh, maybe pin it down later if we have to. I will Yoda. slap someone. Did you hear that one? What's that? 
having that Yoda story where it's a, a throwback from uh, Kenobi's journal. Luke won't know it's it's Yoda, but they still they don't know exactly when it set place. I'm like, are you kidding me? Come on! It's just sometime in the past, man. Just relax, which reminds me of a, I mean, Marvel did this in the past, too. In the original Marvel series, they had the flashback uh, to Obi-Wan uh, called Silent Drifting, which was basically the story or that ah, sometime in the Old Republic. And eventually it got pinned down. But in that time, it just, ah, it's in the you know past sometime. But I guess it's I guess we should be at least happy that it's not like when we had a, a flashback to relatively soon before A New Hope with a, another issue. I think it was called Crucible, another issue of the Marvel series where basically Luke looked like just a little bit younger than his movie self. But Owen and Baru looked like they might as well have stepped out of Attack of the Clones. So they aged a lot in a couple of years. <laughs> Nice. <laughs> really uh, old. You know, uh, you had mentioned it uh, at the beginning, but one of the things that really, you know, the drop moment for me uh, was there at the end when the escape pod gets open and Thane heard sifting sounds above and lifted his face to see the escape pod doors shiver. Then they slid open, sending a small cascade of sand streaming down onto their feet and revealing New Republic search team silhouetted against the bright sun. Am I glad to see you guys? He lifted Sienna in his arms. Help me out, will you? Sure thing, Corona 4. One member of the team leaned forward to pull Sienna through the opening to freedom. Thane crawled out just after and flopped down in the sand beside her. The medic leaned down. Do you need assistance? Take care of her first, Thane said. He expected the medic to begin examining Sienna's injuries. Instead, all the other team members pulled their blasters. As the leader kneeled down with a pair of magnetic binders for her wrists. What the... The words died in Thane's mouth as he realized the New Republic soldiers were doing exactly what they were supposed to do. They were capturing a high-ranking Imperial officer who would be tried for her crimes. He'd thought he was rescuing her, that the Force had miraculously intervened to protect them both. All Thane had done was deliver her to prison. And the way it's done in the audiobook, the music cues that they use, oh my God, that moment broke me, man. I broke. Like, at, at this point, you've gone through this huge ride with these two characters. You know, you're, you're, you're rooting for Thane. Like, you're, you want him to get his girl. You know, he's got her. He, he had to do some low stuff to get her. He had a beat on her. You know, she's already wounded from an earlier battle. She had, you know, Darth Vader type apparatus attached to her belt, keeping her alive. She was helping find other Imperials that had survived different battles because she couldn't do anything else. And she was just kind of now getting to the point where she could serve again. They gave her the ship and he not knowing, but he basically just you know, sucker punched her in a broken rib kind of scenario. So I don't know, man, you were rooting for him to get the girl and then bam, you find out that he's the reason why she's going to go to jail. And when you think about what they do to Imperials, I mean, yeah, he, he sits there at the end and they, you know, he talks a good game. Like, yeah, you know, they might let you go, but at the same time, they could decide to go the route of, uh, you know, jazz Cinder's group and, and execute them. I mean, I don't know how much her record is going to help her per se. I know Thane's going to do everything he can to help get her off the hook, but she served for a long time. This is true. This is true. Uh, I think this would be the point where, uh, I guess, two quotes come up that are that are apropos here. I think it's easy to just sort of shove this book aside and say, yeah, it's young adult. You know, there's no way it can be written with any complexity. It is less, I guess, grammatically complex than what or vocabulary complex. I think I need to change vocabulary to an adjective of some kind, but it's less complex in that sense than, say, some adult Star Wars novels are, but not 
really all that dumbed down at all. It's just that the print is a little bit bigger and it makes it a little bit longer overall, but it would be longer even with a little bit smaller text. So one of the things that stands out is that she's bringing sort of the same craftsmanship of certain phrases and uh, passages that she brings to Bloodline, you know, where we talked about how well certain things were conveyed in things like Castorfo's speech and Leia's speeches to the uh, to the Senate. Um, we have some interesting perspectives here. For instance, uh, we have Sienna saying, you know, it was the perfect trap, you know? I was so dedicated to honor that I became a war criminal. She is, in essence, in a lot of ways, the soldiers fighting for a regime that they don't control and simply following orders um, who think that it's the, it's their duty to simply do so. Uh, and there's and there's that ever riding question of, you know, at, at what point do you have to assume that you have a duty to life or a duty to your fellow man, so to speak, and that that somehow supersedes the oath that you took? Like, we would hope that there would have been people among the Nazis who finally said, screw this, or the German army, I'm out, right? Like the guy uh, who winds up trying to take out Hitler uh, that the movie Valkyrie was made out of, uh, which was actually a real event. But, you know, you would expect someone to maybe walk away. But when honor is such a basis of culture, when the oath is never to be broken, it is essentially a trap. I mean, in a sense that her culture almost has like, if I can pull a... Uh, a Trek reference here, almost a Klingon level of caring about honor, that she wasn't willing to do it. Which leads, of course, to the encounters that are very strained between him and Sienna, where they're sort of arguing and arguing, and then they come together, don't you dare stop, etc., etc. And we, we get a great line that perhaps somebody would probably wind up telling to, to Thane while she's in prison, too. But it was a line from General Riken at one point after he came back from running into her. <laughs> okay, running into her is probably not the best way to put that. From a, an encounter with her. There you go. Where he And this is probably my favorite quote of the book. He says, you know, the galaxy's full of women who don't fight for the enemy. <laughs> that was a good moment, too, when he realized what. Because Thane actually came to him and was like, sir, I've got to tell you where I've been. <laughs> We're not that kind of army, Cabriel. And then as soon as he told him what he was up to, the total tone shifted. You're like, uh-oh. Riken is going to kick your butt. Um, and but perspective, I think, is a big part of this because you never at any point, I don't think, think of Sienna because she's with the Empire as the enemy or as the villain of the piece, nor is she really a victim per se. She is someone who's caught in a complex situation that she doesn't know how to get out of, but that doesn't make her a victim. There's never any point in this where it feels as though, even whenever they are fighting on the bridge of the Star Destroyer as it's going down, trying to save each other's lives the way that they think they need to, um, that leads to the ending. At no point does it seem as though Sienna is a weaker character, that she is being cast at any kind of damsel in distress sort of model, that they really are treated as equals. That's another thing that draws me to the book is that it allows these two to play off of each other in such different situations and different perspectives, and yet we come out feeling for them both and feeling like in a way both of them were right and hoping that something works out. Like by the end of the book, you're like, there really needs to be another book with these characters so we know whether or not she ever gets out of prison and such. Uh, I think a prime example of this is the way that they look at things after A New Hope because there's a point at which... You know, she's having a conversation with one of the other Imperials uh, who basically is able to rationalize things and say, well, you know, the destruction of Alderaan, it must mean that the Rebel Alliance was a bigger threat than we thought they were. Otherwise, they wouldn't have needed to destroy an entire planet. And if their threat really is bigger, then we're not in peacetime. We're in wartime and taking out that planet to stop rebellion and scare the crap out of all other rebels can act as a deterrent to save more lives, a cost in billions versus trillions kind of thing. Uh, and you see those 
those types of rationales going on. But then you see an interesting conversation between Thane and Sienna talking about the explosion and the horrors of the explosion and what they felt. And because they're not actually speaking of the specific thing that exploded, they both think they're talking about the same thing. And what's happening instead is that Thane is talking about the destruction of Alderaan and the horror of that and how the Empire is just evil. Whereas Sienna is talking about the destruction of the Death Star and all the Imperials who were just doing their jobs, including a friend of hers who just got killed. So you, they think they're on the same wavelength, but they're not. But again, it's, it's this interesting juxtaposition of their two perspectives. And we as the audience know they're talking about different things, but they don't. It plays very well. There's a, I guess I would say this is probably the most human Star Wars book that we may have ever gotten in terms of it just... You could, you could almost see these people existing as modern-day people in similar situations, somehow cast on opposite sides of a conflict in the real world. And in a lot of ways, they would act the same because it's just a human nature as applied to this complex Star Wars situation. Yeah, there was also a great moment. I can't find it, but it was when she saw Palpatine for the first time. And right before she sees him in the physical flesh, it, it talks about how she could close her eyes and she remembers, you know, basically how he looks in episode one and two. Uh, and then she sees him, you know, for the reality. And it's just like, you know, she jumps back kind of thing. Like, holy hell. And, you know, there's another part here. And and please, Nate, if, I, if I'm repeating what you've already said, stop me. Uh, where it, it talks about how she thinks about uh, some of the tortures and stuff that she had heard from her childhood about different types of punishments. And basically, it's like a rack. And she's thinking about, you know, how it goes. Now it was happening, not to her body, but to her soul. She had sworn an oath of loyalty to the Empire. She had made friends there who would be with her for a lifetime and had served with distinction. Yet the shadows she had glimpsed long ago had lengthened and darkened. The useless deaths of so many pilots, the increasing pressure to put aside everything she had been, the corruption and devastation here on Jellican, and above all, she could not forget Alderaan, a world destroyed in an effort to prevent a war, an effort that had utterly failed. None of that divided her heart as brutally as simply being with Thane again. And I, I love the fact that, you know, as Thane moves into the rebellion and stuff and she runs into him each time, she asks him, you know, well, what about the leaders? And there are leaders there that he respects. Princess Leia, uh, Wedge Antilles, you know, to a degree, maybe Luke Skywalker, although he's a little skeptical at that point with the Force. But it makes her stop and think about that. And she is totally conflicted. And, and it is like when she sees the Emperor later, she starts to really realize she's in that trap that you had mentioned, uh, you know, where she her loyalty and stuff has totally got her in that spot. And that is an element of the Empire that I really enjoy. Like, I get that they're bad, okay? But I like the Empire. I like the cog. I like the order side of it and stuff. But I also like the characters that join the Rebels from there. You know, I was always a fan of of, uh, of Hobby and of Tycho Klishu, you know? I mean, the people that left the Empire that were TIE fighter pilots and stuff like that recognized the evils and then jumped ship, you know? I mean, and, and that's kind of, you know, I, I got that feeling of everybody that Thane was with, I wanted them all to join the rebels and so when he finally you know he shows up at the base and the mighty oak apocalypse is there and the rest of his old crew has joined the rebels you're like yeah right on and so when you get to that escape pod moment and you know he's telling the medics you know hey help her out and you're thinking they're gonna start bandaging up her head and stuff and they pull out those handcuffs your heart sinks right there with them because yeah, you were rooting for you know thing you're hoping it was all gonna come together almost everything was working out if he could just get sienna Reed to join up and 
be with him. I mean, she's willing to die to escape, but she's not willing to rebel. And that's interesting. Yeah, like you're expecting, like, and literally, I'm going into that last, you know, epilogue type chapter and i'm thinking oh this is where we find that she's she's finally free to join the new republic etc etc because the emperor is dead and her oath goes with him or something like that as if she hadn't taken an oath to the empire rather had taken an oath to him i'm expecting sort of the pat ending that doesn't leave you emotionally going i don't know what's going to happen and instead i mean we really get that that gut punch there's this conversation that they have where she says, I wish you'd left me aboard the Inflictor. He says, if you're waiting for me to apologize for saving your life, you'll be waiting a while. But I understand why you feel that way. Do you? You wanted to do your duty and escape the Empire at the same time. Suicide was the only way to do that, to balance the scales. But you shouldn't measure yourself against the Empire. You're worth more than the rest of it put together. You do understand, but I wish you'd respected my decision. You're glad to be alive, though, right? Aren't you? And her answer is... It's too early to tell. That, to me, I think is, I think in essence, that's an important aspect of the way that this story ends, in that it's not a pat ending. It's not even entirely a happy ending, even though they both managed to survive, and he intends to stick by her and try to find a way to help her. But, I mean, we're left with the sense that Sienna is still torn on whether or not this is even a good thing that she has survived, thanks to him. Again, I really want to know where this could go. We have the final line of the book where Nash Windrider uh, is saying, you know, you'll be avenged, referring to Sienna, when the Empire rises again. We so far, to my knowledge, haven't seen any of the new minor characters introduced in this book showing up elsewhere. But I want to see that. I want to see some more early First Order things and maybe see Nash Windrider somehow uh, as part of the process so that we can see that, see what happens to Sienna and Thane. The closest we've gotten so far is to find out that Sienna is coming to the Star Wars Armada miniatures game as a pilot, uh, and Thane Kyrell just came to the X-Wing miniatures game as a pilot uh, for the ARC-170 miniature. By and large, these characters haven't really been referenced outside of this book, but they are probably the ones that at least emotionally we, if you're, we've been reading the new canon stuff, are some of the most we've invested in emotionally who still feel like they have story to be told. I'm not sure that we need a sequel to this book because I'm not sure that anything could hold up to it. I think this is kind of one of those that needs to stand alone as it is because it is the arc of these characters as it was. But mm-hmm. show us what happened to them in some way by referencing them in another work or having them show up again and just have sort of a reference to what may have happened in between then yeah. and now. But give us something, because uh, right now it's it's like if Romeo and Juliet, if uh, Romeo had drank the poison and Juliet had stabbed herself, but we left, instead of having their funeral or finding out that they were dead, with him on the floor with his eyes fluttering and her holding his hand with her eyes fluttering like she's going to die, and they just said, okay, cut. The end. You want to know what happens. Mm-hmm. No, and I'm with you on the aspect that you don't need a sequel book. You know, you could have them come in. I think I'm more curious as to, okay, if the New Republic decides not to execute her, how long do they keep her in prison for? I mean, is she going to be in prison for the rest of her life? That seems a little excessive. I mean, <laughs> give her one of those little scratchy things like Ray has so she can scratch on the wall of her cell how many days and she's been in there. <laughs> yeah. Once you've reached 5,842, you can get out. Well, as long as you can count each one back to us. You're like, oh, 
man. I mean, that's that's one of the angles. Like, I, I'm with you. I want to see more of these characters. I don't care if it's just a small little reference. Like, like Yendor in Bloodline, like, could have, you know, had while Leia was talking with him at Ryloth or something where they saw a picture of him with Thane Kyrell and Leia recognized him from in her youth kind of thing. Uh, you don't even have to name them both. I mean, just one reference to one or the other. Uh, I like that kind of through story. I think, though, you, you said something a second ago that because the way this was wrote, the way that you go from one end to the other of their you know span, it does give you that sense of you really feel like you know these characters more so than any other character in Star Wars right now. I mean, aside from maybe Ahsoka, you know, I mean, like, we don't know much about Luke and Leia post, you know, Return of the Jedi. We know more about these guys than we do them, really. <laughs> like, they did it. Claudia Gray did a really good job of getting you into these characters' personas, giving you the background of why they would think the way they think, and everything felt very natural. Uh, I felt the pacing worked. I love the fact that they tied it in the way they did. Uh, you know, I, and I'm with you, Nate. This one gets a high praise, very high praise. I still like Dark Disciple more, but that's just a personal payoff for me. Otherwise, this book is every bit a number one. This is definitely an essential read for you Star Wars fans. Absolutely. And it's I, I do agree that we know more about these characters than we know about a lot of people within canon now. Uh, they are some of the most fleshed out because we essentially see, I mean, we're basically seeing 16 years of their lives. We're seeing from 11 BBY up until 5 ABY-ish with the Battle of Jakku. Put it this way, on my Star Wars Timeline Gold, I handle summaries by summarizing in the year in which certain things are happening. So, for instance, if a book has a flashback and you've got two different time periods where story is being told, I'll put the main bulk of it somewhere, wherever it's supposed to fit as like the framing story, but any flashbacks get little summaries in the era in which the flashback takes place, and it just says, to be continued below. So, some books, like uh, Tarkin and things like that that have multiple flashbacks or jump to multiple time periods, they wind up with their summary in a few parts, a handful scattered across the timeline. And the more stuff that interweaves with it, the more little chunks that chunks need to be broken into. On the Star Wars Timeline Gold, as it exists for the edition that's coming out October 17th, which would be the 2016 edition, the summary I have for Lost Stars, which cumulatively runs about 11 to 12 pages is split up into 27 separate segments, many of which, in fact, most of which are in different years. This is an extremely long span tale that really gives us, again, a snapshot of the life of these people, not just in a moment in time for them. It's not the kind of thing that, unfortunately, they would be able to do for many characters, but it worked. If this was supposed to be a love story in space, I got it. Starcrossed lovers in space? Absolutely. Just not sure on the whole Romeo and Juliet thing because I think that does it a disservice. Definitely, definitely, definitely check out Lost Stars. It's a fantastic book. And if anything, it provides food for thought for some of the bigger issues of essentially service in a time of war and what it means when you wind up on opposite sides of loved ones. Whether we're talking about the Galactic Civil War, the American Civil War, tension in parts of the Middle East, you name it. Um, it's, it's a thought-provoking work, aside from just being a good Star Wars story. <laughs> I'm pretending busy.
Now that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. We'd like to thank you once again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing our fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online on the Star Wars Report website, Second Airborne Division of Podcasts at www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on Stitcher and on iTunes, which we always encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both our Twitter and our Facebook pages at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Star Wars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our Facebook page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us, our own home one, if you will. Not only can you post comments to us about the show, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or Legends questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can always email us directly at SWBeyondFilms at StarWarsFanWorks.com. Now, before we go, we want to mention to you our sponsors, Audible. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Report you get a free trial run of audible.com to see what they're all about our sponsors have more than 100,000 titles you can explore the star wars expanding universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you flat out hate because audible members they can exchange any book within 12 months that's one year with no questions asked so in this digital age if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the audiobook audible just might be right for you yeah because you know you can exchange those books you haven't made an oath to any author eh eh I like it. I like it. So, once again, for Stars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying thanks for listening, and may the Force be with you. And don't quote us the odds that, like with Shadows of the Empire, we'll get a soundtrack for this book that'll include some... Wait, no, that's the wrong franchise. Damn! And that would be kind of creepy if they were in bed for that. Oh, you were just making other music. Never mind. Shut up, Whistler. <laughs>